Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. It is good to be back with you. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks uh, since I've been here. Last week I had the opportunity to go down to... Kentucky um, and pick up another partner church for us. And so those are always uh, good weekends when we get um, another church to come on board and begin supporting um, our work here. Um, It's also good to kind of go back to an area that represents kind of my culture and where I came from. Um, But then at the same time, I'm excited to get back here (laughs) after seeing that culture. Um, and what I mean by that is, is just uh, such a redneck and wonderful culture that they have down there. Um, but what comes with that is, and I'll just kind of fill you in on this before I jump in, um, on their Sunday morning, because uh, I had to preach their Saturday night service and their Sunday morning service, which were drastically different experiences. Um, but the Sunday morning service, um, predominantly 65 years and older, and uh, as I was walking um, down to the front and, and as everyone's kind of coming into the morning or, or to the service, um, there was this dear old lady as she was walking down. I said, well, good morning to you. I said, I'm glad to be with you guys today. And she said, we'll see you in about 45 minutes. And so I said, that's what we're dealing with today. All right. So, um, but it was, uh, it was good. She actually did come up to me after the service and said it was a good morning. So uh, <laughs> she also wanted to make sure that I knew that. Um, last week, we're, we're in a series right now in the book of Psalms. And last week, we looked at Psalms 42 on how to be discouraged well. Um, and today, our focus is going to be in Psalm 51. And it's going to be how to, how to be crushed with guilt well. Um, And so if you can kind of start to see a pattern here um, in in these kind of early psalms is just a lot of anguish and a lot of lament, um, a lot of regret, a lot of guilt. And a lot of these are going to be tied to some are circumstantially that aren't necessarily issues that uh, that were brought about by our own sin. As we kind of saw in Psalm 42, it's it's kind of more external. Um, But today's is very much an internal um, and this is, this is to provide for us a framework, um, a way in which we can think and feel rightly, um, biblically, godly around our own sin and when we mess up. Um, how do we handle when we sin and mess up? Um, there's an easy way for us to talk about that when it looks to a, a non-believer. And all you need to do is you just need to come to Jesus and you need to ask for forgiveness. He's the only one that can forgive you. And so, so like you need to have that kind of restoration and you need to have that reconciliation. You need to have God come in and forgive you and save you from your sin and your, the evilness that you were born with. But what, what do we then do when we are walking believers who trust that, who know that, who have come to know the gospel, who know the good news, who are walking with Jesus on a daily basis, and yet still continue to sin and still continue to feel guilt and shame and grief and regret when it comes to our own um, issues that we still walk with on a daily basis? Um, sometimes people kind of unfortunately want to Bible thump you with this. Um, well, you're, you, you don't know enough scripture. You're not praying enough. You're not treasuring Christ enough. You're not doing this enough or whatever it looks like. And, and in some ways almost try to diminish the guilt and the regret and the remorse that we feel when it comes to this, as in you're also then not believing the gospel enough. You're, you're not seeing Jesus enough. You're not seeing the fact that he's forgiven you already. You shouldn't be feeling these feelings that you have whenever you sin because you are a saint now. And so there's a right way to handle both from the way we think about it and the way we feel about it, these type of internal, deep-rooted, just horrific emotions that we feel and that we think even when it comes to our thoughts about ourselves and our thoughts about others when it comes to how we deal with sin. And how we deal with sin on an ongoing basis. 
And I want this to kind of be a two-parter for us today because I feel like in our culture right now, um, and predominantly ours, I mean, we were even just having a conversation about this um, out in the cafe before jumping in here, is it's really quick for us as believers to just point out the sin in other people's lives and almost try to kind of come in and exert our, our, ourselves onto them as in, uh, you need to feel terrible for what you've done. You need to think through this and, and see why you are so wrong in, in the choice that you made or the way you're thinking or the way you're processing things. Um, and so we always kind of try to exert it onto others um, without ever realizing that we're in the same boat. Like we, we, we say things that are wrong. We operate in areas that are wrong. We care for people in wrong ways. We abuse people in wrong ways. We use people in wrong ways. We gratify our own sinful desires in right ways and wrong ways. Like we, we do all kinds of things that at the end of the day are not what we would say pleasing to the Lord. Um, they're displeasing to Him, but He has provided for us in the Psalms, and this is after, as we'll see here in just a second, in a context with David, He's provided for us a beautiful way in which we can think and feel rightly about our own sin, in which the Lord allows us to sit in it for a while so that we can rightly... Did something just happen? Did the light go off? Is that just me? Okay, never mind. It's just me. I'm not tripping, all right? Um, but anyways, it allows us to be able to have a framework for when we sin tomorrow or when we sin today or when we sinned yesterday and we haven't dealt with it yet, how we can walk through this and process this um, as we go through. And so before I get into Psalm um, 51, I want you to see something here. If you were to read, and I don't know if, it's, if there's headings in your Bibles or not, um, Psalm 51 is really unique to a lot of the Psalms because it actually does give us the context in which David wrote this Psalm. And at the beginning, the heading goes like this, To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so what happened with Bathsheba, if you're not well known with, with that story, um, here it is in crisp biblical words from 2 Samuel 11, 2-5. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of um, Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he laid with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Whoops. <laughs> so what did King David do? He tried to cover his sin by bringing her husband Uriah home from battle so that Uriah could lie with her and think it was his baby. And then when Uriah, being the noble man that he was, would not come and lie with her because his fellow comrades are out fighting a battle in a war right now, then David basically sends Uriah to the front of the lines and has him murdered in this war. And then here's something that interesting happens. 2 Samuel ends with these words, The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Of course, it displeased the Lord. But then this happens in 2 Samuel. Samuel 12, 7 through 5. The Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. So you have David who has committed adultery and even some would say has raped Bathsheba. And then not only that, it's then led into deceit. He's tried to lie through this process. And then not only has it led to deceit, it's then ultimately led into murder as well. So you've got this abuser, you've got this deceitful liar that also leads into him becoming a murderer. And then you have at the end of 2 Samuel 12, the Lord saying that he's just put the sin away. Now that, if you were to look at that just kind of face value, does not sound like a just God. It does not sound like a just judge. It does not sound like a righteous judge. It sounds like he just swept it under the rug. Because here's the reality. If you look, there were collateral damage, confounding variables going on to David's sin that hurt other people, yet David seems to look like he goes clean with this. Bathsheba's hurt. Uriah's murdered. 
the child that they actually conceived end up getting, is taken, killed. And so you have this story of David with this indwelling sin that he commits, that he acts upon. How do we first, before we ever get to looking at the psalm, how do we first deal with a God who first appears to be unjust in this story? What does it mean that he's put away his sin? This is one of the biggest arguments from secular scholars. They believe that the God of the Bible, more times than not, appears to just sweep sin under the rug and doesn't deal with it. And I, too, would resonate with their skepticism and be outraged at God's behavior here, except for one thing. The Apostle Paul explains how God could be both righteous and the one who justifies murderers and rapists and liars. He says in Romans 3, 25 through 26, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood, as a substitute by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It's exactly what 2 Samuel 12, 13 says God did. He passed over David's sin. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How is David's sin ultimately justified? Because in God's forbearance and in his patience, he placed all of David's sin on Jesus Christ. So the cross of Christ, first and foremost, vindicates sin throughout history for those who are in Christ. And the same way that we receive salvation, the same way that we receive forgiveness, the same way that we are reconciled into a relationship with God through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us, is the same way in which David can stand there and be an abuser, who can stand there and be a deceitful, who can stand there and be a murderer and not fall dead on the spot is because of his faith in a Messiah who will come and vindicate sin for all of those who are called according to God's purpose. If we don't understand that first and foremost, we don't have a framework to even deal with sin. We gotta have a cross a cross centered approach to sin first and foremost before we can ever deal with our emotions and our thoughts around this idea. Because if we don't look at the cross first and foremost, and we start dealing with our sin on our own basis, all we're trying to do is behavioral management. All we're trying to do is how can I not do that again? How can I try to rewire my way of thinking? How can I try to rewire my, my affection so that I'm not having longings for this sin? How can I change that? How can I reprogram myself so that I don't do that again? And you even hear the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 like war with this in his own flesh, in his own heart, in his own mind as he says, literally the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do are the very things that I do all the time. And, and they're the things I hate. Anytime that I like ground myself to want to do the right thing, evil is close at hand. And so there's this constant basis within our hearts and within our minds as we are kind of walking in what we just refer to as the already not yet. Yes, we are already saints in Christ Jesus, considered righteous, considered just. When Jesus looks at us, he sees us as himself because of his righteousness. It's the great exchange. It's the 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become his righteousness. So we've become his righteousness through the cross of Christ. We are not yet glorified in a future, complete absent removal of all sin. And so there's this constant warring with ourselves on a daily basis of trusting in this new identity that we have, while also at the same time warring with this old flesh that we have been raised up in and born with. And that has not fully been dealt with. The Apostle Paul's talking about that. That's what he's warring with in Romans 7. Why can't I just do the thing I want to do, the identity of Christ? I continue to do the thing I hate, which is my old self. 
So how do we deal with that on a daily basis? And what Psalm 51 provides for us is not only how we deal with it, but also when we fail. How do we deal with it? Because who fails in here? Like, please let it not just be me. Like, we all fail and we feel the weight of this. And there's a reason for why we need to come to the Lord on a daily basis. Like, it's not just coming to the Lord for daily provision. Lord, I need this in my bank account. I need this job. I need this amount of friends. I need this church. I need this fill in the blank. Give us our daily bread, but also forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. Daily forgive us. Aren't we already forgiven? Already, not yet. Yes, we are already forgiven, but at the same time, we are being reminded daily that we need that forgiveness so that our actual behavior can begin to change. But it's got to change at the root of what God is doing and has done in the gospel in our lives rather than just behavioral management. And some of the ways I say that is if you just focus on behavioral management and you think about mowing a yard, when you first mow it and you've mowed over grass and weeds, it all looks good right when you first mow it. What happens a couple of days later? The weeds grow a little bit faster than the grass does, and it looks awful. That's just behavioral management. Let's just keep mowing over the issues that we have, yeah, there's some fruit in our lives that's good, yes, there is, but at the same time, there are weeds in our life that, that are not producing good fruit, that are producing, as we've seen in Galatians 5, the fruit of evil, the fruit of sin. And so there's, there's ways in which we can deal with this, and Psalm 51 is going to provide this framework for us. So let's read it together. And, and as we look through this, um, there's four primary points of how we can deal with this. And then within some of the points, I've got some other things going on. So just follow along. <laughs> Number one is he turns to God. David turns to God in this sin that he's dealing with. He turns to his only hope, the mercy and love of God. Verse 1, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Three times here he says, have mercy according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. Who's this according to? It's according to God, not David. This is what God has promised him in Exodus 34, 6-7, where the Lord, the Lord, a God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness is keeping his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? So this is him providing steadfast love, providing mercy, providing gracious, clearing the guilty for those who are in Christ, not clearing the guilty for those who aren't. David knew that there were guilty who would not be forgiven, and there were guilty who by some mysterious work of redemption would not be counted as guilty, but would be forgiven. And that's what he's holding on to. I'm holding on to your steadfast love, Lord, that in some mysterious way is clearing the guilty. We know more of the mystery of this redemption than David did because we have seen the workings of Jesus Christ. Number two, he prays for cleansing. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is also down in verse seven. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was the branch used by the priests um, to sprinkle blood on a house that had a disease in it in order to declare it clean. And so he's just kind of giving this imagery here of like, I need you as the high priest to sprinkle me in order to declare me clean. Like, I need you to cleanse me in this moment of my sin. David's crying out to God as his ultimate priest that he would forgive him and count him clean from his sin. It's good and right that Christians ask God to do this. It's good and right for us to ask God daily, cleanse me, cleanse me. I mean, how many of you right now can think of a sin that you did this morning? I can think, I've got a list running based on when I walked into this place. And like 
All of this was not here. All the chairs were back there. Tables were everywhere. Glitter everywhere. Soundboard was a wreck. I think there was like a child, like a children's birthday party in here yesterday, and they just ran amok. I mean, it was insane. And so I just, I've got a list going. Like I'm, like, I'm preaching angry right now, but I'm really trying to hold it in. Like that's just the way I feel. I'm just letting it out. Christ has purchased our forgiveness. He's paid the full price for it. And it does not replace our asking. It is the basis of our asking. It's the reason we are confident that the answer will be yes when we come to him and ask him because we know he's paid it full in ransom. So first, David looks helplessly to the mercy of God. Second, he prays that in his mercy, God would forgive him and make him clean. Third, he confesses the seriousness of his sin. And this is one of the ones that I think that we don't do enough. He confesses the seriousness of his sin. And there's actually at least five ways that his sin is extremely serious. And so this is point three with five subpoints if you're really trying to follow along, okay? So point three, first subpoint. First, he says that he can't get the sin out of his mind. He can't get the sin out of his mind. It's stamped on his conscience. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's ever before. Like just, it's a tape that just keeps playing and it can't stop it. We were staying at an Airbnb in Louisville this week and put, they, they had this little, um, oh, what do they call it, vinyl player? Vinyl record player? <laughs> um, and one of the vinyls that I pulled out, just tons of scratches on it. And I was like, I mean, I'm, I'm not in the world of vinyl, so I don't know much of it. But I put it on there and just started playing, and it was just click, 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 and it was just playing the same thing over and over and over again. And this is exactly like what David is saying. is like the sin that I just committed with Bathsheba and with Uriah is ever before me. I keep playing it over and over and over again in my mind. I cannot get it out of my head. I know my transgressions. Like I know I am, I am familiar with my sin. Are we familiar with our sin? Like when the Bible tells us to examine ourselves, do we examine only the things that we do that are nailing it? Man, I examined that prayer I had last night. Nailed it. I examine my finances and how I'm stewarding. I'm giving all that I can give to the church. I'm loving it right now, which is a great, great thing. But are we only examining those things? Are we also examining the areas in which we are at fault? Second, he says that the exceeding sinfulness of a sin is that it is only against God. Nathan had said David despised God and scorned his word. So David says in verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, this doesn't mean that Bathsheba and Uriah and the baby weren't hurt. It means that what makes sin to be sin is that it is ultimately against God. It doesn't mean that we don't, when we're confessing sin, that we only confess sin to God. Yes, we are to go and confess sin to one another, especially as we have wronged one another. We need to be upfront and, and do that because that is good, right, and that's reconciliation. But ultimately, when we sin against one another, it is a sin against God. And if we only look at it from the surface level of sin against one another, well, then we think we're good by just going to one another and asking for forgiveness. Or just forgiving ourselves by kind of working with it on the inside and trying to kind of, again, that behavioral management all right, I, I, I looked at this or I did this, so as long as I just don't do that and you go a week without doing that, you've forgiven yourself by no longer doing that. You feel better about it in some way. But yet, have you run to the Lord yet? Why have you not? Because again, you probably have a, a um, misunderstood view of a relationship with God as Father who is merciful and gracious I think we have a negative view of God so much so that because of some type of issue we've had with a father figure in our life or um, someone in some type of authority within our life, whether that's within a church or within a school or uh, within a job, 
that because of the way they reacted to us whenever we messed up, well then surely that's how God the Father is going to react towards us when we mess up. And so instead of running to Him when we mess up, we run from Him when we mess up. I mean, this was Adam and Eve in the garden. This is by nature them running from the Lord and hiding when all they've known of Him before that was how good and gracious He is. Third, David vindicates God, not himself. This is an interesting one. There's no self-justification here, no defense, no escape. Verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, God's the one on trial here whenever we sin and it's not dealt with. If God would have just redeemed a bunch of people without paying a debt for sin, without there being death, come into existence because of sin, God would be the one on trial. There would be no reason to trust him if he were to go back on his word of him saying the wages of sin is death. So if we were to just allow people into heaven without any type of death being paid for sin, then, sin is, or then heaven's just full of a bunch of sinners that have not been dealt with. And that compromises everything we know about God. Him being holy and Him being righteous, and Him being good, who cannot be in the presence as far as communion, union with sin. And so Jesus coming to the cross is not only vindicating our sin, but it's vindicating the justice of God who has been passing over sin up until that point. So now, therefore, God has been justified. Fourth, David intensifies his guilt by drawing attention to his inborn corruption. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some people use their inborn corruption to sort of diminish their personal guilt. Like, I just sin because I'm just born this way. I just can't help it. And therefore, they don't want to feel any sort of guilt or remorse over their sin because they just pass it on. I was born this way. And especially for believers, there's a reason why the New Testament uses language like being born again. Because yes, as we were brought in iniquity, someone has come and taken that iniquity from us. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became our sin. He took our iniquity. He took our sin and placed it upon himself so that he could then reborn us into his righteousness. And therefore, that is now not only our identity, but our deepest longings and desires. We want to do right. We want to speak well of one another. We want to encourage each other. We want to edify one another. We want to love and serve. We want to do the things that Christ is because He is our very nature. He is our identity. So when we sin, instead of just placing it on this sort of, well, that's who I used to be, We've got to realize that in that moment, if we don't feel the weight of the sin that is against our natural or our new natural identity in Christ, if we don't feel that weight, we won't deal with it and we won't actually get back to the new identity that we have. If we just kind of brush it off as in it's not a big deal, then we're also not making a big deal of Christ in us. We're not making a big deal of the fruit of the Spirit that's supposed to be born within us. So David does the opposite. For him, the fact that he committed adultery and murdered and lied are expressions of something worse. He is by nature that way. If God does not rescue him, he will do more and more evil. And that's the reality. Is like when we don't bring it to Lord and are remorseful over the sin that we commit, when we kind of brush it off and make light of it, we think by not making light of it means we won't do it again, but it actually just means that we're going to increase it. 
when we get serious about it. And we're bringing it to the Lord. And not only bringing it to the Lord, but we're seeing the Lord within us. We're getting to know ourselves, our new identity in Christ, more so that we then begin behaving and acting in a way that is in line with the new spirit that is within us. So the more serious we get about our sin, the more serious we will also get about Jesus. But I would also kind of reverse that. The more serious we get about Jesus, the more serious we will get about our sin. Fifth, David admits he sinned just not against external law, but against God's merciful light in his heart. Again, this is getting at that identity. Behold, you delight in truth, verse 6, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. See, God had been his teacher. God had made him wise. David has done so many wise things up until this point, and then sin got the upper hand in this moment. And for David, this made it all the worse. I've been blessed with so much wisdom and knowledge. Oh, how deep must depravity be that it could sin against so much light that is within me. Like, we need to see that reality. Like, we, we do not need to belittle the powers of sin and evil and the enemy. We know we have a power that is within us that is greater but at the same time, we do not need to belittle this as if we can manage it in our own strength. We manage it with the strength of Christ. And this is what David's wrestling with here is, how could I sin when I have so much light within me and wisdom that God has bestowed to me? That means that sin is very powerful. So in those five ways, at least David joins the prophet Nathan and God in condemning his sin and confessing the depths of his corruption. Now this leads to number four in our overall points. What does he then do? He pleads for renewal. After turning helpless to God's mercy and then praying for forgiveness and cleansing and then confessing the depth and greatness of his sin and corruption, David pleads for more than just forgiveness. He pleads for renewal. He's passionately committed to being changed by God. And I just wonder, like, you being here today is not just for you to come and serve um, a body of Christ. Yes, that is a part of what we're doing today. But you being here today is also you posturing yourself and opening yourself up to be changed by God, to receive prayer, to receive songs that are singing the gospel, to hear a sermon that is being preached in order for the Holy Spirit to come into your life. And as you are receiving these truths, for those truths to embed themselves within your heart and your mind so that it then begins working within you salvation that is producing fruit that is making you more loving and joyful and patient and peaceful and kind and good and gentle. Those things are happening by you just being here and receiving this. And this is what he's praying for. He's praying that renewal would come upon him so that he would actually change. Like when David looks at the sin that he just committed, he is in full hearted and thinking, I don't want to do that again. In order for me not to do that again, I need to change. Because if I don't change, guess what? Next time I take a stroll on the roof, I'm going to be looking in windowsills to see if I can find someone bathing. Because in his sanctification, that's where he's at right now. There's more room to change. And he's wanting this change to come and happen. And so there's at least six ways in this four part that he prays for renewal. I just didn't want to give you like 17 points. So I'm trying to like work with it here, okay? First, he prays that God would confirm to him his salvation. Now, I think this is so good for us. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
I know some say that Christians who are, who are called, who are elect and secure in the sovereign grace of God should not pray like that because it implies that you can lose your salvation. And I don't think that this is what he's saying. I don't think praying for God to not remove his presence from you is in some way declaring that you can lose God's salvation. When David or I pray, don't cast me away, don't take your spirit from me, we mean don't treat me as one that is not chosen. Don't let me prove to be like one of those who have only tasted the Holy Spirit and who have not consumed the Holy Spirit. Don't let me fall away and show that I was only drawn but not never um, held by the Holy Spirit. Confirm to me, O God, that I am your child and will never fall away. Essentially, he is saying, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief here. Like, I know that I am your child, but remind me that I'm your child. Remind me what it felt like at that first moment when I heard the gospel and understood that he was giving me forgiveness of sin. I mean, and here's, here's the unfortunate reality is that a lot of times we view kind of that first moment of our Christian faith, our, our, our induction into um, believing in Jesus Christ as like the best moment of our entire life. And I don't want to diminish it, but we tend to look at that moment as like that was the mountaintop, and then I've just kind of been wrestling with it ever since. Like, I don't have those types of affections anymore. I don't have that type of zeal like I once had. And I just think that that's wrong. <laughs> I think it's wrong for us to view it that way. It's kind of like a marriage, and I even feel convicted saying this, so don't think I'm nailing it here. I know she's back there. When you say, I do, should not be the moment in which you love your spouse the most. And if we look at the church as the bride of Christ and Him being our groom, is the moment we loved Him the most was when He said, I do to us and saved us. Or as we continue to get to know our groom, and the depths of the gospel, and the depths of grace, and the depths of mercy as we walk through this life. What he's praying for here is that affections and thoughts about him, treasuring him, would increase. Remind me of this. Bring me back to this. Second, he prays for a heart and a spirit that are new and right and firm. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The right spirit here is the established, firm, unwavering spirit. He wants to be done with the kind of instability that he has just experienced. Like he, He's just experienced an instability of not being able to trust his emotions and his thoughts when he was walking on a roof. And he's saying, I don't want to think like that anymore. I want to have a right way of thinking. So therefore, Lord, I need you to create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me that has the right motivations for when I go for a walk next time. I mean, if he's being serious about this, you got to know that David, the next time he goes for a walk, is going to be nervous. Is the Lord working within me? Is he, is he creating in me a clean heart, a pure heart, so that the next time I look at a woman, am I looking at her as a sister, or am I looking at her as an object of pleasure? That's why we see in the New Testament so much so that the language of seeing and viewing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, because there's, there's purity there, there's motivation there that is right as fathers and mothers as well. Third, he prays for the joy of God's salvation and for a spirit that is joyfully willing to follow God's word and be generous with people rather than exploiting them. Verse 8, let's, uh, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And down in verse 12, so he's kind of 
sandwiching these, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, it's astonishing that in this psalm, never once does he pray for sexual restraint. He actually never talks about sex. Not once in this entire psalm does he ever talk about sex. It all started with sex, leading to deceit, leading to murder, or did it? I don't think so. Even though Sigmund Freud may think that everything is kind of hung up on sex, David here is not saying that. Speaking for God as he's writing this does not see things that way. Why is, he cry- why is he not crying out for sexual restraint? Why is he not praying for men to hold him accountable? Why isn't he praying for protected eyes and sex-free thoughts? The reason is that he knows that sexual sin is just the symptom, not the disease. People give way to sexual sin because they don't have the fullness of joy and gladness in Christ. You don't treasure Christ. Fill in the blank whatever sin becomes the symptom. When you treasure Christ and you see Him and you experience the joy and gladness found in Him, sin doesn't look fun. It doesn't look enticing because you're being satisfied by Jesus. You're being fulfilled by Jesus. You're looking at those things around you as evil begins to lurk and comes near. You're looking at those things and saying, man, like why would I, as C.S. Lewis say, why would I enjoy a mud pie here when I've got this ocean over here that I can go and enjoy? So David knew this about himself. And it's true about us too. David is showing us by the way he prays what the real need is for those who sin sexually. Let me hear joy and gladness. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing, firm, and established spirit. Fourth, he asked God to bring his joy to the overflow of praise. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You see, praise is what joy in God does when obstacles are taken out of the way. That's what he's praying for. Oh God, overcome everything in my life that keeps my heart dull and my mouth shut when they ought to be praising. Overcome whatever it is in my life that is keeping my heart dull and my mouth shut. Make my joy irrepressible. I can't help but praise because I see your goodness and your gladness and your glory. Fifth, he asks that the result of all of this will be a life of effective evangelism. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. See, David is not content to just be forgiven. He's not content to just be clean. He's not content to be saved. He's not content to have a right spirit. He's not content to be joyful in God by himself. He will not be content until his broken life serves the healing of others. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Which brings us to the last point. Number six. He discovered that God has crushed him in love and that a broken and contrite heart is the mark of all of God's children. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You see, this is foundational to everything that we do. Being a Christian means being broken and contrite. Don't make the mistake of thinking you get beyond this in this life. There's never a time where I don't need to be humbled. That there's never a time that we don't need to be blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We are broken and contrite all the way home unless sin gets the proud upper hand. 
being broken and contrite is not against joy and praise and witness. It's the flavor of Christian joy and praise and witness. I'm going to close with the words of Jonathan Edwards, who said it better than I can. He says, All gracious affections, feelings, emotions, that are a sweet aroma to Christ, are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy. And it's ultimately so that we never boast in ourselves, but we boast in Christ. We boast in Him. I hope for us as a church, and I feel like, again, this is because there's so much going on right now just in church culture, across denominational lines, um, the Twittersphere, everything that's going on. Right now, the church is so focused on who's right and not who's humble. And I know as our church, I mean, it, you can't escape the, the dialogues that are going on out there. I hope for us that we come with the posture of, as David says, I know my transgressions. I know my sin. It's ever before me. I need the renewal of the Spirit of God. And it's through a broken and contrite spirit that I humbly want to tell others about Jesus. That's going to include in the church culture world how we can encourage one another as we continue to wrestle through interpretations and scriptures and whatnot. But let's come with a humble and broken spirit because we know. We know. And at the same time, as we just deal with our sin on a daily basis, let Psalm 51, it, like if you don't know how to, when you're in the midst of sin, if you don't know how to come to God and confess it, then just use Psalm 51 where you go and you get yourself into some solitude and you sit down and you say, Lord, I don't know how to talk to you about this sin. I'm just going to read Psalm 51. And as I read Psalm 51, let that become my prayer and the outpouring of my heart and my mind so that it provides me a framework and down the road, as again, you're changed by God, you're able to now have a way in which you can think and feel about your sin so that you can then begin contextualizing your own sin in your own prayers as you offer them up to the Lord. And through that process, I promise you, because I know God and what He says in His Word, you will be renewed. You will be restored. Joy will begin welling up within your souls. And you won't be able to do anything but praise and tell others about His His goodness. Lord, I felt like we just uh, continued confession for another 45 minutes. And it's good for us to do this. We can see in your word that you provide a way for us to come to you when we have sinned against you. And there is a reason why we are not put to death when we confess our sin. That's because of your son, Jesus Christ, and him taking our sin and the penalty of that sin and placing it on the cross. So we can now freely come to you, confessing our sin, knowing that because you are just, you will forgive us of those sins. And you will renew us and restore us and remind us 
of who we are in Christ Jesus. And God, I pray that that produces within us humility. We become more like you. Love you, Lord. We thank you for what you are doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to this time of communion, um, I actually do want this one to be a little bit more on the old-fashioned kind of way of communion. And what I mean by old-fashioned is they used to get up and preachers used to say, now's the time you, like, you do not take this table without dealing with your sin first and foremost. And so it is for a time for us to examine ourselves. But I want this to also be a time in which we can examine by coming to the Lord and saying, I have sinned against you. Here's where I have messed up this week. But Lord, you have also provided Jesus Christ by breaking his body and shedding his blood so that I can come to you and offer this sin in confession. And I know that I will be forgiven and restored and renewed both in spirit and in heart and in mind and in affection. And so let this be a time in which we examine, bring that sin to him so that you can be relieved of this guilt and you can actually regret well. Let the Lord take it, deal with it. And then as you receive communion, let that be spiritual nourishment for your souls to fill you up to the point of joy and praise. And when we're done with that, we're going to sing a song and we're going to praise him for him giving us this opportunity to be able to deal with our guilt well. So right now, awkward moment of silence. Let's examine ourselves. Just think about this week. It's probably not going to be hard for you, just like it was with David. It's ever before me. So let's deal with it. Take it to the Lord. And then as you're ready, go up and receive his restoration through communion. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at